for the week of December 16th, 2013, this is the Energy Gang Podcast from Green Tech Media. Stephen Lacey here in Washington, Senior Editor at Green Tech Media. Also with me in D.C. is Catherine Hamilton, a partner at 38 North Solutions, a clean energy public policy consulting firm. Hey there, Catherine. Um, I'm so sad I missed your ho- office holiday party this week. That's okay. D.C. has been plagued with uh, what I would call snow events in air quotes because, you know, as, we, as you know, it doesn't really snow, but everything shuts down anyway. Did your party get shut down? No, we oh, were good, good, but we're supposed to get more snow tomorrow. Yeah, well, I love it. I was just out in San Diego, and it's hard for me to get in the Christmas spirit, or the holiday spirit, uh, without cold weather and snow, so I embrace it. And out there in San Francisco is Jigger Shah, a clean tech investor, energy futurist, and author of the book Creating Climate Wealth. Are you feeling festive out in California this week, Jigger? I am. I was actually at this hotel yesterday that had four and a half foot high gingerbread houses, actually made of gingerbread. So it's like smelled of gingerbread when you went in. It's pretty cool. Were there any like battery backup systems made of candy or any solar panels made of ribbon candy? Well, you know, the funny thing is they did have one house with solar panels on it. But the other thing was that um, they were all lit up, so they're clearly electric, so they put some, like, LEDs in. All right, there you go, sustainability coming to the gingerbread movement. In this week's show, we're going to talk about distributed storage, cap-and-trade, and the insider politics of energy. First, we'll discuss some recent financing and partnership activity and customer-cited storage. Then, who says cap-and-trade is dead in America? We'll look at carbon trading in California one year on. And finally, we'll speculate about the closely watched move of John Podesta, who uh, led my former employer, the Center for American Progress, and who was Bill Clinton's former chief of staff and also uh, head of Obama's transition team. So he's gone back to the White House where he may fill in some missing gaps in Obama's energy team. And at the end of the show, in place of our normal segment, we're going to highlight some clean energy holiday gift ideas. All right, on to the first topic. So the storage market is undergoing a noticeable shift. Previously, developing battery storage solutions was all about finding better chemistries, building bigger factories, and lowering technology costs. And of course, that's still really important and a big focus for some companies and for a lot of research organizations. But the technologies are becoming competitive enough now where some are focusing increasingly on the services these batteries can provide, particularly on the customer side of the meter. And so this is where business model innovation comes in and starts influencing the market in new ways. SolarCity is experimenting with batteries from Tesla. The two companies just announced a new offering for commercial customers designed to reduce demand charges and boost the economics of solar systems. So that sets the company up against STEM, an up-and-coming firm focused on commercial customer storage that just brought in millions from GE and Iberdrola. And some disclosure to listeners, uh, Jigger also invested in a fund to help that company roll out uh, storage storage as a service solution. So is this the beginning of a surge for customer-sided battery storage? And where will the technology make the most sense? Catherine Hamilton, our storage lover and aficionado, uh, what's your take on this recent spate of distributed storage news? 
This is really cool, and it's and I, it's not unexpected from my point of view. You know, there are 101 energy storage companies in California alone, which is pretty phenomenal. Um, are I those wanna... companies that are bi- doing grid storage or oh, customer? all all different types of storage? So everything from the grid all the way down to the distributed side. And I would just take a step back in time for just a moment on the the customer behind the meter. Um, technologies. Because when I was in a utility in the 80s, we were selling energy storage systems to try to deal with peak demand situations. The the utilities at that time and where I was in Virginia, it was a huge real estate boom. They couldn't build out their distribution system fast enough. So the utilities actually came up with time of use and thermal energy storage rates that, um, that would incentivize customers to install ice energy. And these are mostly small businesses, schools, you know, small commercial facilities to install ice systems. Um, Brick and hot water heater systems have been around for ages. Um, So we've had systems that are that would be considered energy storage even though they're on the thermal side out there for a long time and most of those were put in place to deal with peak demand situations now the cool thing is that these companies like stem and other ones are are using batteries and other technologies with data analytics and intelligent um, software to be able to do a whole host of things. So it's not just dealing with peak demand. Uh, some of it's pretty sophisticated arbitrage so that you're always reading the, you know, figuring out what the price of energy is and adjusting and figuring out what's going on in the grid and adjusting. So it's moved, although the thermal systems are still out there and that market is still quite strong. I think we've moved into sort of a new space given the technology developments. Yeah, this software that these companies are deploying is a real key piece of this. And this hooks the battery storage system up into the building energy management system and allows them to react to changing uh, conditions in the power markets and also to monitor what's happening broadly in the building. So this is a very fundamental change that you point out. And that brings us to STEM, which really is trying to sell itself on this software solution, which it says can take battery storage and turn it into a broader energy management strategy for hotels and and retail organizations and other um, commercial and industrial customers. Jigger, we've talked a little bit about STEM, but when you looked at what they were doing, uh, what was the value proposition that you saw? Well, their initial value proposition really is just um, saving people demand charges. What you find is is that, in fact, the peak demand for many of these hotels and others is um, reached maybe twice, three times a month. And so they actually don't have to deploy the batteries that often per month to guarantee these demand savings. And so that's the main source of revenue they're going after now. But what's exciting for them is that the Cal ISO independent system operator is expected to implement for a quarter 755, which requires ancillary services and these kinds of things to be offered to folks who can bid an appropriate amount of capacity in the marketplace. And that could t- double the total amount of revenue that they get. Um, from just the demand savings to also these ancillary services. So it seems like a pretty bright future. Yeah, the issue is that you're not going to bring investors to the table unless they know that there is market certainty. And Order 755, which pays for performance, essentially speed and accuracy for frequency regulation, um, was that first ability for energy storage and anybody who could meet those requirements to participate. But that's really, that was the only market that opened up. And frequency regulation alone, that one service isn't going to pay for the fixed cost necessarily 
of an installation. So there have been some other orders in the meantime, 784 that um, opens up ancillary services for the non-organized markets and also requires accounting procedures, which is really important to be able for utilities to track what they're spending and what the benefits are of storage. And then very recently, Order 792, which was for the small generator interconnection procedure to allow energy storage to take advantage of fast-track procedures to interconnect onto the grid. And all of these are opening up more and more markets in which storage can participate. So we foresee um, the next markets to open up are frequency response, uh, which will probably come early in 2014, and then and then the big kahuna, which is capacity markets. So California is already, you know, opening up some of that with the 50 megawatt um, in the LA basin that, uh, the 50 megawatt requirement in the LA basin that SoCal Ed has put the RFP out for. Um, but those capacity markets are really going to allow people to, to implement in the competitive markets, pay for fixed costs and really be rewarded for the values they provide. And our guy, John Wellinghoff, who was on the podcast recently, who just left FERC, he was responsible for all those orders, correct? Well, I wouldn't say he's the only one. They were all unanimous on these orders. Um, It's not as if the FERC commissioners just said to themselves, we love energy storage. They basically said, look, there's all this innovation coming on the grid. It needs to be valued. And honestly, the energy storage community was able to present real data that show how energy storage has been operating and the value that it provides. And so when you're given data, it's easy to make those decisions. The other thing that's really interesting here is that it's the solar customers that are moving fastest because a lot of the solar customers who put solar on their roof have gotten themselves slightly more educated about what their electricity bills look like, what a peak demand charge really is. And so the sale to them um, on battery storage has been easier than the sale to, um, to sort of folks who haven't done solar. Yeah, on the distributed side, right now, solar definitely has the most, most to gain from storage. So we're seeing, even from the national level, SIA has been really, really interested in making sure that we are in sync with solar and storage. I want to be clear about the size of this market. This is still pretty small. So we are targeting STEM and Solar City. STEM's got about six megawatts in its in its portfolio today. The fund that Jigger invested in is supposed to help another fifteen megawatts come online. Uh, Solar City and Tesla's partnership is designed to target about fifty systems in the next year. So we're still talking about a pretty small portfolio compared to say the number of solar systems that are being deployed in this sector, but. Uh, certainly with these regulatory uh, structures coming into play, a lot more companies are, are able to talk to customers in a new way. I was reading a story about Duke Energy recently, too, that got a $10 million grant from DOE to do a public-private partnership that would – they will have a distributed energy resource management system that allows them to model and forecast uh, solar, storage, demand response, EVs, all of the, the different distributed energy resources – um, in a way that allows them to do planning better, which I think uh, shows sort of the way the utilities are looking too. that you know, there's a lot of stuff that's going to come into the system that they're going to need to figure out how to manage. Uh, and so, so I thought that was an interesting project. On the East Coast, there's this new factor that we've talked about as well, and that is power reliability 
in the wake of Superstorm Sandy. And so a lot of customers that were shut down for even weeks at a time after Superstorm Sandy are starting to look at storage as a reliability issue as well. And even if they can just use a little bit of power to maybe run an elevator for an hour a day or to run some backup lighting, that has enormous value for a customer. So we're not necessarily talking about running a whole facility off of a storage system for multiple days at a time. But if a commercial customer or a retailer or a hotel can run critical systems for short periods of time during the day, that can go a long way in creating value for them. Well, this is the argument that we've made for a long time is that the 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 experience of Germany around integrating renewable energy resources has been so successful that I think a lot of folks have started to realize that storage is not this big brick wall that's in the way that has to be overcome for us to have high penetration of renewables. But in fact, they're looking at storage as a way to solve some of these resiliency problems, some of these peak demand problems, electric vehicles. And then what you find is these storage units actually have other benefits which could allow for higher penetrations of renewables and that kind of stuff. So my sense is, is that what's going to happen is that there's so much value being ascribed to these solar, these storage systems in the everyday life of folks for resiliency and for peak demand savings, that the actual integration of, of higher percentages of renewable energy is going to be sort of a, another benefit that they get for free. Here's what I love about this model, and and I think it's still very early to say how this is going to evolve, but it goes back to some of the convergence that we're seeing in the home energy management space, where security firms are getting deeper into energy management, they're getting deeper into solar, and they're trying to add, they're trying to provide all the services at once and basically take on many of the tasks and the services that the utility isn't able to provide and creating this enormous set of functionality for the homeowner. Everything from a thermostat to the solar system to the software that guides it all. And in the commercial sector, you see a company like STEM starting to partner with the big industrial players like Schneider Electric and Honeywell, um, now GE, which is invested in the company, to find good sales channels uh, to hook up technically with the building energy management system and to provide a better range of services beyond just simple storage. And from what my conversations with STEM, it's very clear that they want to get um, beyond just, say, frequency regulation or beyond uh, capacity markets as they accumulate more systems. But they want to get deeper into the building itself and help provide an energy management strategy that storage hasn't previously been able to do. SolarCity sees the exact same thing, I think, by working with Tesla. They're going to start integrating electric vehicles. They've got solar. They've got their software solution. Um, They're working deeper on creating these tools so they can get efficiency contractors into the building in a one-touch solution. So it's still just coming together now, but these are not going to be disparate services. They're going to start to come under one roof. Yeah, I agree. It's yeah. and it's so much about monetizing all of those different value streams because right now, as you say, it's only in those small markets that have opened up or where demand charges are the highest right now. And I think it's going to have to to really be able to to take off. We're going to need to monetize a whole bunch of different value streams. And the other the other way to say that, Catherine, in my opinion, is really just you know we're starting to become more transparent about the value that these. Things have voltage regulation, frequency regulation, backup power, resiliency. All these things are starting to have a value associated with them, which heretofore was sort of not calculated. And so now that we're actually putting values in them, whether the, the Nest thermostat 
sort of demand response programs. O-Power is doing that. All of these things are going to be able to come together, and you can see someone put together the equivalent of the iPhone um, for homeowners in the future. So it's not just solar and and battery storage and things that are disparate, but one solution that benefits from all these values, and it's just not that far away. Now, we're all kind of bullish on this, but let's bring ourselves back down to reality. This market is still very small. There are a number of technical integration issues and customer education issues these companies need to deal with. Do you guys have any skepticism about what these companies are offering? Jigger, I mean, if you looked at, say, a company like STEM, or any of the other storage as a service offerings, what, what, is there anything that raises any red flags for you? Well, obviously, they've got a software that act, uh, component which actually guarantees, in some ways, that the the commercial customer is actually going to save uh, money, and that we don't know whether that software really works or not yet. We'll see after they do hundreds of locations whether that software really is working well, or whether there's some sort of fatal flaw they have to fix, and and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I do think that there's some risk there, and then the other risks to companies like us, the investors like us are investing in projects as if STEM isn't around, let's say, to service those batteries, then um, is there someone else who can step in and actually provide that service to customers or do they now just have a battery with nobody running it and no one optimizing it, right? So there's certain risks to this marketplace that didn't exist for solar that we have to actually figure out how to, how to mitigate for this market to get big. Oh, I'm such an energy storage booster because um, um, I, I think all those problems are solvable and they're going to be companies that come and go. But I don't I think that that there, that there's more there are more pros than cons to this. I also think we don't want to neglect the distributed storage aspect that's not grid scale, but that's that's an, that's still slightly in front of the meter. And that's sort of on the community side, because I think this is something we need to watch for in Germany and Japan as well, um, where, you know, company right now, there's a big project that DTE Energy is doing in Michigan, where they've got 20 small storage units that are next to transformers that's called community energy storage. They're using it on their distribution circuits for reliability, for integration of solar. They're repurposing some auto batteries to do this and testing that out. And I think um, that is going to be a space that's going to grow as well. Um, you will see how this project goes and what they get from it. But I only see the storage, the storage market as increasing. Yeah, it's, it's a cool topic. And I do think one of the catalysts here that people should pay attention to are the solar companies getting into this or the storage companies partnering with solar com- companies themselves. I think that's a very important combination of factors that's going to bring in a lot more commercial customers. All right, on to topic number two. So California is a year into implementing its cap-and-trade market, and so far it's been pretty smooth. So far, California has raised about $1.4 billion from auctioning carbon credits. But there are, of course, concerns going forward. Uh, Some of those include using offsets, like planting trees to perhaps water down the program, and also concerns about whether California's other clean energy promotion tools will substantially lower credit prices, potentially hurting future demand. So what can we say about California's cap-and-trade market a year on? Jigger, you're out there in California. Um, We're all kind of paying attention to this, looking at what it means for a carbon pricing scheme throughout the rest of the U.S. There in California, we've got modestly low credit prices, but a smooth auction process. Uh, What's your thoughts on how things have gone so far? 
Well, I think it's important to note the difference between the European cap-and-trade and the California cap-and-trade, which is that in Europe, the cap-and-trade system was sort of far more broad-reaching and sweeping with a patchwork quilt of other uh, policies around transportation, electricity, etc., that were not really coordinated between the two. Whereas California took a completely different approach, which was saying that we're going to use a sectoral policy to get you know, the carbon out of transportation, a sectoral policy to get carbon out of electricity. And then for all of the other stuff that's not really something we can do from a sectoral basis, we're going to create a cap and trade scheme. And I think that that approach so far has worked really, really well. I think it's given the right market signals to the technology providers, and it's given a right market signal to polluters around what their options are to figure out how to reduce their carbon emissions. So Thomson Reuters put out this interesting analysis concluding that California's market will probably be oversupplied through the coming years due to emissions reductions from these other programs, from the renewable energy standard and from the low carbon fuel standard. And the question becomes whether California should ease those programs in order to let cap and trade dictate the investments made. You know, proponents argued that cap and trade is the most efficient way to channel investment into clean technologies. Do you have any comment on that, Jigger? Yeah, I think that there's a tension there, but I think that the way that California is going about it is actually worth testing all the way out to the 2020 conclusion, you know, the date of when the auctions sort of start just becoming free flowing. And, you know, we'll see where that goes. But I, but I actually think that the way they're doing it sectorally matters, right? Because you really do want a balance of dictating outcomes, which is really what environmentalists want, as well as um, some sort of transparent approach to uh, where the price of carbon is going to be, which is what clean tech entrepreneurs want. And I think the balance, which is having sectoral policies, 33% renewable electricity by 2020 or, or whatnot, um, mixed with the carbon cap and trade policy is giving people far more comfort than just letting the free market decide um, on its own. Yeah, I reached out to Diane Grunick, who is a California Public Utility Commissioner and has been toiling in the vineyards of energy efficiency and clean energy for quite a long time. And you know, she had sort of the same response that Jigger has, which is, you know, the rollout went really well. There's the fears of gaming, the fears of businesses moving out just didn't happen, that things went pretty smoothly. Um, but one thing to keep in mind is that the San Onofre closing did have a significant impact on their greenhouse gas emissions on the electric side. So in 2011, 50% of their emission-free greenhouse gases came in SoCal Ed were from San Onofre. And, and so now, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of blown that out of the water. So they have to come up with other ways of lowering greenhouse gas emissions. So I think because of that, I think that that's a great opportunity for clean energy technologies. I also think, you know, it looks like they're going to reach the 33% renewable um, the 33% target by 2020, and then there's an 80% below 1990 level target by 2050. But there haven't, there's not a target for 2030 yet. So I think that's still out there. Is you know how what are they going to do for sort of once they get past the 2020, which is really not that far away? What's kind of the next set of things they're going to do, and the next set of programs they're going to put forward to try to meet those goals? Well, the other thing I'd say to that is that, you know, one of the reasons why we want this to happen in California is just because the people that are regulating these programs in California are so damn smart. I mean, there are some places 
in the world like you know New York City, California. There's a few other places around the world where you really have smart people there that can actually roll with the punches and actually read the data properly and understand how the program might have to be changed to accommodate that. And so I'm really glad that California is leading this charge because I just think they've got ridiculously smart people monitoring this program. All right, so let's talk about some of the criticism, criticisms of the program. The biggest one is the use of offsets going forward, and that is a polluter can invest in a forestry project outside of California and use the carbon reduction or the carbon sequestration from that forestry program as a carbon credit in California. Environmental groups are extremely critical of this uh, as it can cause leakage. Uh, it can, you know, you have this problem of additionality. Did the program actually, would the program have actually gone ahead anyway, even without support of the, uh, the carbon, the cap and trade program? And I've seen estimates that roughly 75% of reductions can actually be made through offsets like this, just through, say, planting trees out of state. If that is the case, I, I haven't verified whether that 75% number is correct. But if that is the case, that is a huge problem. Uh, Catherine, did you talk about that at all? Well, we talked a little bit about sort of the resource shuffling issue of, you know, the out-of-state emissions, um, you know, buying out-of-state power and, and, you know, you could buy offsets and then, you know, pollute in-state. So I think part of this, they have to come up with some rules and some maybe some potentially some structural changes. But I think another issue is a Western interconnection agreement on greenhouse gas reduction so that it, you know, you're not just limiting to California, but kind of the states around that. And that might also have some some positive impacts just generally on the greenhouse gas emissions and that on the entire Western part of the United States. Yeah, look, they're looking to go to the state legislature to to solve that loophole and to basically cut that back and limit it to a certain amount. And so California is learning. You know, I mean, let's be clear that this this program was not perfect when it got rolled out. But part of that was because of politics. I mean, this was added because some legislator wanted it added. And in exchange for that, they you know voted for the bill, which you have to do. The other good thing about the program is the auctions that California is running between um, now and 2020 survived a court challenge. They determined that the revenues that come from this to the state of California are not tax revenue, even though it is revenue to the state. And now, depending on what the carbon price is and the auction price is, California is going to make between $12 billion and $70 billion of additional revenue to the state off of this program, which you can imagine makes a lot of folks who don't want to make budget cuts in other areas very happy. I think there are some key indicators here after the first year in trading. So um, after a number of auctions, they have sold 100% of the credits, and I think they've almost so sold all of the forward credits for 2016. The credits were trading above the floor price at about $11.48. So that is fairly low, but uh, as someone pointed out to me, it's not necessarily about the price yet today. It's that companies are buying up all the credits and buying future all the future credits as well, which says that they have faith in the long-term viability of the program. So that's a crucial indicator as well. And then, of course, the size of this market is going to grow as uh, it links up with Quebec and perhaps links up with other Western states and maybe even municipalities in China 
I know that administrators in California are working with Chinese officials and different municipalities and providing best practices on how to actually implement these programs. And this sets the stage for the coming years when China perhaps considers binding emissions reductions and uh, deploys a much larger cap-and-trade system. So cap-and-trade looks like a policy that China wants to develop. So there are some really key indicators here, I think, that are crucial to look at. Well, and this is really good news, right? I mean, this is going back to really how smart the regulators are in California. For for Quebec and British Columbia and maybe Reggie and then some of the other folks around the world who are interested in carbon regulation to learn from each other and for California to really have real-time knowledge, not theoretical knowledge, to offer, I think just makes me hopeful that these programs are going to be successful. Yeah, and it, and it really sort of... Um integrates this and uh, into their entire every the way they think about everything so for example um a third of the flights leaving sfo are flying to southern california (laughs) um so when you think about air travel and and carbon emissions from airplanes they're they're talking about high-speed rail they're talking you know what they've done is they've embedded this and internalized it in everything that they think about and so the problems are really just noise and they're solvable it, it, what the good news is that it looks like it's working. Yeah, there's a lot of good news coming out of California. I am certainly not ready to call it a success, though, just after one year of operation. I mean, you look at the UN's uh, carbon trading scheme. It was it has fallen 99. I mean, carbon prices have fallen 99 percent since 2008. Uh, the clean development mechanism is only pulling in about $15 billion in revenue this year versus $198 billion in 2012. And that was because of a variety of market conditions, most notably the global uh, economic slowdown that impacted demand for carbon credits. But there's a lot out there that could impact the feasibility of this cap-and-trade system in California. So I'm not ready to call it a success yet, but there are some very crucial indicators that, that show that there's a lot of positivity coming out of California. And very smart people that I'm willing to bet on. All right. So is the White House betting on John Podesta? Uh, Let's go on to our final topic and talk about whether the White House is ready to shake up its energy policy team. Beltway journalists and pundits were buzzing about the return of John Podesta to the White House, who will counsel President Obama over the next year on a variety of issues. Podesta is former chief of staff to Bill Clinton and helped lead Obama's early transition team. And he was uh, my former boss at the Center for American Progress. I say boss very loosely here as he led the organization, not the energy team I was working on. But energy was one of his favorite topics, and he was very well-versed in almost every element of the issues we were working on. Um, Podesta's move to the White House is seen as an important one on energy, particularly for Keystone XL which Podesta has been very publicly against and was against when I was at CAP. So what are the implications here for broader energy policy and for hot-button issues like Keystone XL? Catherine, what's your analysis of this move? Uh, talk about smart people. This is – he's great. Um, and because he was chief of staff, he knows 
he ran the White House. He knows how to get things done. Now, he's not coming in specifically to do energy. Um, you know, they've got Dan Utech. They've got um, Bob Simon, who's waiting to be confirmed as associate director for OSTP, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, who's going to head up that in- energy and environmental piece there. He was Bing- Senator Bingaman's former chief of staff. Um, so Bob Simon can do a lot of the content work. But the thing about Podesta is he understands these issues. He understands how to get things done. And this is a legacy issue for Obama. So if they've got, you know, he's going to be extremely helpful on international climate negotiations as they head into Paris in 2015, which is going to be really critical for them. He's going to be helpful in making sure that everything happens on EPA with the greenhouse gas rule, with fracking rules, methane, HFCs, whatever they do at EPA, he's going to be able to ride herd on that. He won't, you know, they have a process they go through, but he'll be able to manage a lot of that. And then all of these disparate things that the agencies do, he'll be able to kind of pull it together and make sure things get done. I, he is not a guy who's driven, in in my opinion, or what have I, I have observed, by an ego, by, you know, I want to be the head of everything. He's the guy who says, I'm going to roll up my sleeves. I am a public servant and I'm going to get it done. Yeah, everyone who's interacted with him has said good things about him in terms of how he runs operations and his understanding of the mechanics of government. And when I was in participated in some meetings with him and he worked on some of the key issues that we were discussing at CAP, whether it was international climate policy, natural gas regulations, Keystone XL, or renewable energy policy, this guy knew what he was talking about. And it wasn't just his key issue. I mean, he had to work on every issue under the sun, but he took a special liking to energy. And I was very impressed with his understanding. He could just come into a meeting and very well understand every single topic that we were working on. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, look, I I was part of the Energy Future Coalition and there was about, what, 25 of us that met, you know, once a month for about six months a year. And, um, you know, and I agree with everything you said, Stephen, he's really thoughtful on these issues and very smart. But the sources that I have in the White House have sort of said to me that um, he's really there to fix the place. Um, It's extraordinary to them how dysfunctional the White House is right now. For instance, when he was at the Clinton administration, they used to have like daily talking points that went out to all the staff. Today, the White House is so afraid of leaks that they're actually not communicating with their own staff. So I think we're being – I mean, look, I think it's great news that he's there. I've been lobbying heavily for someone other than just Dan Utech being our person inside the White House. Um, That being said, I think that he's there to actually really figure out for the Obama administration how to run the White House more effectively um, and not really work on climate and energy issues. I don't disagree with that. And clearly the Obama administration needs a shakeup. A lot of people within the White House who are unnamed sources have told news organizations that they're welcoming this and that they've needed a staff shakeup for some time. Podesta came in later in the Clinton years and helped him during his second term blues. And he's seen as doing the exact same thing here in the Obama administration. So he's working on a lot of structural issues within the White House and energy and climate issues are only a small piece of that. However, uh, with the with Obama developing this executive climate plan and trying to push through some of these initiatives before he closes out his second term, I do think that Podesta will be pretty crucial in, in sort of helping him cross the finish line on many of these issues. Um, and then this Keystone XL issue is a really important one. 
So Podesta said that he was going to take himself off of any executive decision-making on the Keystone XL pipeline uh, when he was at CAP. And after he left CAP, he was very publicly critical of the pipeline for climate change reasons. And so although he has taken himself off the official decision-making process, I can't help but believe that he is going to be there behind the scenes helping inform Obama's opinion on this. And, of course, there's a lot of other people that have to do with this decision in the State Department and within the White House. But this is someone who comes in with an alternative viewpoint who's been very publicly against the pipeline that I think provides a very interesting element to the later decision-making in this project. Yeah, and I think uh, the president picks people that he trusts to be his closest advisors, and I don't think there are very many of those people. So I I, I feel like you know, there are a lot of people at the State Department working on this that are all saying things loudly and clearly, but the people he's going to listen to are the people he trusts that are closest to him. Yeah, so I mean, I agree with everything you guys said. I, I, this is fantastic news for the clean energy industry. I think you know he clearly is not there just to work on our issues, but it's fantastic news for us all the same to have somebody of that reputation who knows our issues. I mean, he most recently worked for Tom Steyer as a consultant as well for the last six months, and so you know, having all that knowledge, having all that insight, and being connected to our movement really can't hurt us. And, and I do think that one of the big challenges that the Obama administration has. On, on our issues, and I've obviously been very critical of them, is I just don't think they're run well. I think they have good executive orders, they have good policies, they have good intentions, they just don't have good execution. And if John Podesta can bring good execution, that would be a huge win in my book. All right, so let's wrap up here and uh, talk about some gift ideas. At the end of the show, we usually tell our listeners something they don't know. We're going to switch it up a little bit and provide some holiday gift ideas related to clean energy that our listeners should know about. So, uh, Jigger Shaw, what do you have on your list that you may be getting for people? Well, obviously, you know, the first thing you should be getting is my book. Cause <laughs> I knew that was coming. Sharing wealth. <laughs> you clearly want to be sharing wealth this season, and in my case, climate wealth. But I think, you know, one of the things that was surprising to me, and this is a, another self-plug here, but my uh, niece, uh, Raji Shah, uh, down here in San Jose, actually started making earrings out of catalogs. And um, she literally took the paper from the catalog and made it so tightly wound that they made these beautiful earrings out of it. And so I bought a bunch of those to you know, give out to family members and that kind of stuff. And that got me thinking that there's actually a lot of things that you can do um, on the sharing economy. So so that that seems pretty cool. So my sense is, is that like, you know, that's one big area. And then just being totally crass about this, um, I've been really uh, investing in these battery backup um, devices for phones and stuff. So that's something I'm going to be giving as well just because um, – Lots of people, smartphones, batteries don't last, and they've got these solar battery chargers, which are solar panels on one side, but batteries inside. And so you can either keep them in the sun and charge them, or you can actually just plug them into the wall at night, and it's just an extra battery that you can carry around for your laptop and stuff. So a lot of good stuff this this, uh, holiday season. Cool. I like those. Catherine, how about you? Yeah, so I have four kids, and so I spend a great deal of time on Amazon. Um, We also get a a gazillion catalogs. But one thing that I'm particularly 
passionate about is STEM for girls, so science, technology, engineering, and math. And I love talking to groups of school kids. I love talking to Girl Scouts. And most of my younger kids are boys, so I don't. I, don't, I, I talk to boys all the time, but not that often to girls. So I love talking <laughs> to little girls. My daughter is 23, so she's moved beyond this. But so I was looking through a catalog, and I happened to fi- see this really cool STEM toy for girls. And it's not Goldie Blocks, which is the you know the Beastie Boys song ripoff, big kerfuffle um, that went viral. This is called Ruminate, uh, and and you can Google it, Ruminate. And what they are are these really cool kits um, that girls can build, like their own little house, their own little room. They can build an elevator. They can build a little wind turbine on it. It's really neat. And if I had a little girl who could do this, I, I would buy one. I just think this is a really interesting um, project to try to get girls interested in STEM. We need more girls in this field. I love it. Do they have an adult version too? Well, I'm looking at it going, look how many parts. I could never finish this. (laughs) But I might give it to my sister. She has a little girl. (laughs) Good ideas. I've got two of my own. One that I think people, I recommend people do is to buy folks, maybe the most skeptical people in your family, an LED light and show them that the lighting quality is good. You know, the costs are coming down. And they last a long time. And I think that's just when you take these products that people don't know a lot about or have uh, preconceived notions about and you buy them something, they can see it in action. A good gift idea. The second is something that I'm going to be getting for some close friends and family. And luckily, none of them actually listen to this podcast. So I'm not going to be giving it away. But I will be investing in a project through SunFunder, the crowdsourced uh, solar company that Justin Gway of the Sierra Club talked about in one of our previous podcasts. And, of course, they uh, use individuals like myself to uh, invest in individual projects in developing countries in Uganda and Tanzania, in Kenya. And they have a project here in Uganda that will fund 100 solar home systems for cell phone charging and radio and, and lights. And so I'm going to I'm going to invest about twenty five dollars for each person and then that will go to them and they can earn a return over time. And uh, I think it's a nice little project. I love giving a little bit to charity to for to people for the holidays. And this is a nice investment that they can feel good about and actually get a little bit of money back from. So you are giving the gift of wealth. Indeed. All right. Well, that is going to do it for the gang this week. For links to the stories and resources we talked about, go on over to greentechmedia.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast while there. We're available through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher Radio. And also, don't forget to rate us or review us on iTunes or Stitcher if you use those services. If you've got any questions or comments about the show, we would love to hear them. You can email me at Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com, and we pass those around. We're always interested in what people have to say. All right, Catherine Hamilton, excellent show this week, as always. Absolutely the most fun being with you guys every week. I enjoy it greatly. And Jigger Shaw, good talking to you over there on the West Coast. Absolutely. I'm traveling back to the cold East Coast here momentarily. All right, well, safe travels. With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you all next week. Thank you.